2: Thank you, Scott. And hi, everybody. Welcome to the exchange as we have stocks fighting back into positive territory today. And at session highs, we've paired some big losses from earlier. The Dow's up 145 points right now. That's about two thirds of one percent. We're just below 23,400. The s and is up about seven points now. Nasdaq still lagging by 13. And by the way, for the week, the major averages are still pretty deep in the red. The S&P and Dow down around four percent, around three and a half percent for the Nasdaq. As for today's action, news that the White House says it's open to the idea of yet another stimulus bill seems to be part of the reason traders are taking a step back from the ledge.
3: Uh, But let's get to more of the details with Dom Chu. Dom? It's a pretty significant turnaround, Kelly. As you can see here, it's a bit of a mixed picture from the sector perspective. But take a look at these numbers. Like you said, 135-point gain for the Dow Industrials. We were down nearly 460 points at one stage there. For the S&P 500, this is right near session highs, up around six points or so. The Nasdaq, still floating with marginally negative territory. Let's show an intraday of the S&P 500, because here you'll see at the lows of the day, right after the opening bell, we were down about 53 points, 53 handles. And now we are again at session highs, up about seven points right now. The sectors, financials and energy, two of the big standouts, they were bigger losers early on and have turned around significantly from there. On the lagging side of things, it is consumer staples, Industrials and real estate—the ones that are really pulling things down a little bit—we'll see if those trends continue, Kelly, as we head towards the 1:30 and 2 p.m. hours.
2: You know, I mean, Don, we talked about how the White House uh, commentary might have had something to do with this, but that. We've picked up steam just in the last several minutes. I almost wonder if the market's reacting to the the optimism of Nelson Peltz, which we'll talk about in a minute.
3: Yeah, there will be. There's a good amount of positive commentary out only because now we've been so, at least the last couple of days, used to seeing some of this data come out and some of the sentiment be so negative that the path of least resistance over the very short term has been to the downside. And remember, that 2950 level in the S&P 500 has been one where we have seen the momentum stall out. So if this is going to be a scenario where people feel a little bit more comfortable incrementally stepping in, we'll of course have to watch what happens with trading volumes later on this afternoon, specifically in that last hour of trading in the 3 p.m. Eastern time hour.
2: Yeah, There's the closing bell uh, to cover that for us, Dom. Thanks very much. I mentioned Nelson Peltz here. In just the last hour, uh, Mr. Peltz of Tryon Partners joined the halftime report. And unlike many of the big names we've heard from lately, he sounded optimistic about the market. Here's what he said, quote, there's so much doom and gloom in this thing is not going to last forever. There's still loads of value in the market because the market is primarily a tech market and there is still good value out there. Is he right? Joining me now are Barry James, the president of James Investment Research and Tom Kennedy, global head of fixed income strategy at J.P. Morgan Private Bank. Uh, So, you know, not not trying to put you on on the spot here, Barry, but um, I am interested how you're thinking about this market has evolved and kind of what camp you find yourself in now.
1: That's a great question, Kelly. Um, you know, you look through the scope of time, and there's B.C. and A.D., and right now we're, in, we're going from before coronavirus to after the disease. And so everything from here on out, I think, for the next few years is going to be what is going to work well as we adapt to it, and we will adapt to it. So as we look at the market um, where we are currently, the valuations aren't that low. Uh, we find that insiders have quit their heavy buying, and we find that there's not going to be a lot of buybacks this year, maybe 50 percent less. Hmm. And it's typical, even in the Depression, the Great Depression, you had average rallies of 45 percent in the stock market. We're around, you know, 30 percent or so uh, at the at the peak. So I think that we're in a phase where we're in a little bit of a pullback. We'll probably pull back some more before we really start on the upward path again.
2: Barry, I don't like you making analogies to the Great Depression <laughs> here. I mean, that is... That is not reassuring. Um, Can you just elaborate on that for a minute and and why, you know, you'd say instead of being, you know, reassured by the market's rebound, we might want to place that in the larger context of caution.
1: Well, we we are cautious. Our Golden Rainbow Fund is down at the low end of the equity levels, around 40 percent. And the reason uh, that we see that, 36 million people are unemployed. And it's not going to be this. Rapid, rapid, rapid recovery in terms of jobs. It's going to take time. We will get there. There's no question about it. We will adapt. There's no question about it. It's just not going to happen, I don't think, as fast as we would like to see it. And uh, you know, people are chomping at the bit to get back to work, but we're just easing people back in our office. So we think that this is a situation that will take a lot of time. Consumers have dried up. They now have new habit patterns. Mm-hmm. They don't spend. I'm still carrying the same money in my pocket I had a month ago. Mm-hmm. I haven't spent it yet.
2: Yeah, you don't want to advertise that too uh, broadly, <laughs> uh, Barry. But I, I definitely take your point. I mean, I'm, I'm learning my way around you know the yard and the garden and the kitchen, Tom, uh, more than, than ever. Um, I guess this is a good backdrop to talk about what more we might expect from the Fed here. You know, all we could have been having this debate about negative interest rates. And um, we'll talk in the, at the end of the program to Ian Bremmer, who thinks we're going to need a lot more stimulus. Um, what do you think the market's expecting from the Fed? And do they think he's trying to pass the baton to Congress at this point? And, and if so, uh, what are they likely to step up with?
4: Yeah, I think we definitely got a do more mentality out of Chair Powell yesterday. Um, he sounded very down on the on the recovery and similar to what we're talking about, a V-shaped recovery looks very unlikely. So he still sees downside risk. It's easy, Kelly, to say that, down, that the do more mantra is more about uh, the fiscal side than the monetary policy side, but I don't expect them to just sit on their hands. <laughs> Powell could not have been more direct. Negative interest rates are very unlikely to come. He questions the efficacy, and uh, clearly I think they have better tools, uh, but they can do more. We're starting to pencil in bigger QE programs. The market I think is expecting an announcement about more or less 75 billion a month in treasuries. It's possible they could do more. Um, If I learned anything on the back of yesterday's uh, uh, speech from Powell, it's that They're they're likely to do more. And it looks like it'll be the form of QE. And that that does favor, at least in the short term, a a lower interest rate than other people otherwise thought.
2: Right. So let me ask both of you tactically, then, kind of what you recommend for investors. Tom, I think it's interesting that you would recommend munis. I mean, we know the problems there are legion, but that they also have this backstop, uh, maybe some investment grade credit names, maybe even something in the banks. Uh, What specifically would you recommend?
4: You have to pull on a new lever in this environment, Kelly. Interest rates are going to be low. I think the Fed is going to have the front end around zero for two to three years. Uh, back end yields are just not going to be attractive to a lot of uh, a lot of buy side participants. I think you have to start to pull on the credit lever. Upper tier high yield looks attractive to us. Um, we are legging into that that sector quite a bit. We see value because from a default perspective, from a valuation perspective, uh, and the Fed will be. Will be uh, available in that piece of the market. I think the footprint will be small, but when the lender of last resort comes to your market, prices tend to go up.
2: Yeah, and not just that market, uh, but all markets. So Barry, both with the Fed support and with the very low interest rates that Tom's talking about, you know, why isn't that more uh, to, to keep stocks constructive? You know, why is David Tepper coming out bearish instead of positive, like he did a decade ago when he said, you know, hey, if it sells off. Uh, the Fed's going to step in and, and buy, and if it doesn't, well, then you should also be a buyer of the market. Why doesn't that formulation work anymore? Um, and I should mention here that a couple of the names you specifically recommend are Verizon and Motorola, um, and also Medtronic.
1: Yeah. Um, as we look at it uh, in this period AD, after the disease, uh, how are you going to do your business? Uh, and there are companies that are going to make money. The tech area is really, really smart. That's where Motorola falls in, but also communications. How are you going to get an attract Clients, if you can't go out and meet them face to face, so that's going to be huge. That's why a Verizon is one of the ones. Uh, things that fight, uh, you know, the health problems. Uh, Medtronic actually makes the, you know, the the ventilators and and the like. So as we look at this whole situation. Um, we, we think that it's a temporary situation in terms of the market likely to pull back again and then forming some type of uh, maybe more permanent low. And then as we gradually come out of this, things will, will wind up heading back up. And that's really, uh, I, I like to say this, I think that's when small stocks are really going to be able to take off. But that's probably much later in the year.
2: All right. So when you come on and talking small stocks, we know it's, uh, it's time to, to breathe more of a sigh of relief. Gentlemen, thanks uh, to you both. A fun discussion as always. Barry James and Tom Kennedy. About as fun as can be these days anyway. Uh, Because nearly 3 million more people filed for unemployment last week. And that brings the total number to over 36 million since the pandemic and shutdowns. Many of these jobs may not be coming back. Rahel Solomon is here with more on that. Rahel?
5: Hi, Kelly. So nearly 80% of unemployed Americans describe their layoff as temporary, but sadly, that simply may not be the case for many Americans. In fact, new research out of the Becker Friedman Institute out of the University of Chicago predicts that 42% of jobs lost due to COVID-19 will be permanent. So that would be about 11.6 million of the jobs lost by April 25th. So the jobs most at risk of going away entirely are jobs lost due to shifting consumer demands, and also jobs at companies and plants that have simply gone under that won't make it through coronavirus. In fact, according to a survey by the National Restaurant Association, 3% of restaurant owners and operators say they already had to close their doors, and about 11% more anticipate soon having to do so. That would be about 100,000 restaurants closing their doors. We know that just last week, MGM Resorts put out a note to its employees saying that They had hoped to reopen and be back in business this summer. That's looking more and more unlikely. And so they cannot guarantee that all of those workers that they had to furlough, that they'll be able to return to work anytime in the foreseeable future. And Kelly, in some cases, they can't even predict or guarantee workers will be able to come back to their jobs by the end of the year.
2: Yeah, not a a lot to, to liken this. You did, though, find some areas that are seeing job creation. What are they?
5: So, Kelly, it it looks like for every 10 jobs lost due to COVID-19, three jobs were created. So some of those are uh, jobs that we've talked about extensively on CNBC. So those are the the jobs at the Walmarts, the uh, Amazons, Instacart, Lowe's, for example, Dollar General. But also, uh, as Kate Rogers also talks about, the Papa John's, the Domino's, because apparently a lot of people, as we all stay at home, are ordering more pizza. So those companies are certainly seeing some benefit to all of the stay at home orders and they're hiring because of it. Uh, Some of those jobs will not persist after coronavirus has come and gone, but some of them may. And so that that may be a little bit of good news there. We'll take it. Rahel, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Rahel Solomon there.
2: Coming up a little bit later on, Eurasia Group's Ian Bremmer has a warning for the world. He says expect a wave of bankruptcies and a long-term need for massive subsidies. We'll speak with him about that ahead. Plus, Senator Richard Byrd temporarily stepping down from the Intel Committee amid an FBI probe of his coronavirus stock sales. We'll get you the very latest. And there are lots of tests for COVID-19, especially the antibodies, with more on the way. But a lot of these have high false negative rates, including the one at the White House. We're going to look at the data on success rates as the show
3: continues.
2: Welcome back now to a developing story out of Washington. Senator Richard Burr just a short time ago stepping down temporarily as the chair of the Intel Committee. This says he's being investigated for controversial stock sales linked to coronavirus. Kayla Towshey is here with what we know at this point. Uh, Kayla.
6: Kelly, Senator Burr informed the Senate Majority Leader this morning that he would step aside during the course of this investigation into his uh, stock sales in the early weeks of the coronavirus. A Republican replacement for this influential role has not been named, but a source says that Burr will remain on the committee during this time. A senior law enforcement official tells NBC News that Burr's cell phone was seized overnight pursuant to a search warrant obtained by the FBI as part of that federal probe into uh, stock sales in the those early weeks of the coronavirus by not only the senator, but also his brother-in-law. Here's how Senator Burr responded on Capitol Hill today.
1: This is a distraction to the hard work of the committee and the members, and I think the security of the country is too important to have a distraction.
6: Of course, those comments about his stepping aside as intelligence chair, Burr is just one of several senators uh, whose market activity in February and March raised eyebrows. Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, to, uh, according to the New York Times, uh, has also participated with the FBI, providing information about her stock sales, answering basic questions and providing documents to the FBI as well. Georgia Senator Kelly Loeffler, when asked by reporters on Capitol Hill today whether she had been contacted by the FBI, did not not respond. Now, Senator Burr's actions are the focus of a Senate Ethics Committee investigation as well, one that he asked for when some of these uh, stock sales came to light in mid-March. Worth noting, Kelly, that members of Congress are barred from trading on information that they obtain uh, during the course of some of these private briefings as part of the Stock Act that was passed in 2012. It passed 96 to 3, but Burr was one of the three who voted against it. Kelly?
2: All right, Kayla, thanks very much. Kayla Tausche with the latest there. Uh, joining me to talk more about this is Jacob Frankel. He's partner at Dickinson Wright and a former senior counsel at the SEC Division of Enforcement. Uh, thank you for joining me. So what's the the primary, uh, I mean, it, the, the difficult issue here, I guess, is proving um, that any of these senators explicitly traded on inside information um, because... Unless they have that information on this phone, right? They they're probably going to be able to say, "I did it off uh, public reports," or in the case of Feinstein and Loeffler, you know, my broker did it, and I had no knowledge of it.
7: Well, that really is the, that really is a challenge, Kelly, that you hit it on in the head, and that is in a traditional insider trading case. What we usually have is you have a major announcement by a company that has a market impact, and you can identify the information that itself is confidential and where there was the breach of the duty, the use of that material non-public information. Here, it's not as if there, is, there hasn't been information in the public domain prior to their trading. I think what's really issue, what's really interesting here is the size of the trades, the time of the trades. And, you know, it, it does implicate issues about speech and debate clause, which to me is somewhat of a distraction because, you know, while the government, both the SEC and DOJ will not be able to get into was actually discussed within committee, the fact remains, you know, a lot of most insider trading cases turn on circumstantial evidence, basically piecing together the timing of the trades in the context of the of the, you know, of in of meetings of contact, of information that was available, and the trades themselves. But as you've said, I
2: mean, this one is different and possibly trickier because unlike, I I believe, Collins, right, who was the last major insider trading case, that was a more clear-cut instance of a specific company being referenced. In this case, uh, you know, we're talking about selling a a basket of stocks uh, because of a macro event.
7: No question about it. And again, there were a lot of investigations around nine eleven. There were investigations around the, you know, around what we we'll call the market collapse, you know, in the two thousand seven, eight, nine. Um, but here we're really talking about a market event, so it's going to make the proof component uh, more difficult for the government. And I think the Collins case is actually very different because the Collins case involved his service on the board of directors and his having specific knowledge. Regarding um, re- regarding failed clinical tests, here we're talking to something much more global around the pandemic itself and the briefings. But I think the the fundamental message here, and this was something that the co heads of the enforce co directors of the SEC's enforcement division said several weeks ago, and that is, you know, people who are taking advantage of inside information, which could include members of Congress um, during the pandemic will be subject to investigation, will be the subject of cases. So anything, what we have here is evidence that the government really is pushing forward hard.
2: No, of course. I mean, especially in in a situation like this, I wonder if this one is going to come down to, uh, as you mentioned, the stockbroker who executed trades for Burr and whether he told others to sell, even if the information was only that Senator Burr sold, if that itself uh, has some importance and if it's allowed to be shared or not. And separately, this issue about his brother-in-law, who also made stock sales on the same day, and if Senator Burr told him or they, they talked about doing so, again, would, it, would the burden fall on proving that he told him to sell because he had inside information? Because I imagine just telling him to sell because he says, hey, coronavirus is really bad, uh, probably doesn't uh, rise to the
7: level. Kelly, great question, and I think I think one of the subtle differences, without getting too much into laws, is the difference between the traditional insider trading prosecuted as 10B fraud and insider trading prosecuted as securities fraud under a new securities fraud statute that came out in Sarbanes-Oxley, which is Title 18, the criminal statute 1348. I'm not going to get granular on that, but there, there there has been a conviction that's been affirmed by the second circuit, meaning the you know the circuit that supervises cases out of the Southern District of New York that really is always out in front when it comes to securities prosecutions and to me this is almost more, much more analogous to Martha Stewart in the sense that uh, in, in the sense that you had a broker who told Martha Stewart what the CEO of ImClone had been doing. Hmm. Here, the fact that you now have, we now have information about the brother-in-law trading, the SEC can look at all of the activity in that in uh, Senator Burr's broker's client accounts. That, while there may be an inability of the government to access the communications to which Senator Burr himself was a party, mm-hmm. that does not apply to the brother-in-law. That does not apply to the broker. So there are a lot of avenues for discovery that could ultimately result in a prosecution or prosecutions. Interesting. So back, back to your you know, fundamentally back back to your question, while the proof itself to, to pull together may be a little bit more difficult, circumstantial evidence may nevertheless be compelling.
2: Well, you know, this stuff through and through. Jacob Frankel, thanks for joining me to explain uh, how it may evolve. Appreciate it.
7: My pleasure, Kelly. Thank you.
2: Again, uh, Jacob Frankel there. Coming up, we're going to talk a uh, former Google CEO Eric Schmidt weighing in on the pandemic and the path forward earlier today. Here's what he had to say about it.
3: The fact of the matter is that we're not treating this as an information problem. You need some way of
1: knowing whether people have the disease or whether you're likely to get it. And the government needs ways to identify the hotspots.
2: We're going to take a closer look at next at why the current state of testing may not be able to get that job done. Plus, one mall owner has opened his doors in two states and says consumers are showing up and some brands are seeing more traffic than others. Which ones? He'll tell us coming up.
8: Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access No reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.
2: Welcome back. Now to the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Sue Herrera for our headlines. Sue? Thank you, Kelly.
0: Good afternoon, everyone. Here's what we know at this hour. California's Governor Gavin Newsom plans to reduce state worker pay by 10% as part of a cost savings plan for that state's more than $50 billion deficit. Newsom is expected to release that plan today. A new study shows over one-third of patients treated for coronavirus in a large New York medical system developed acute kidney problems. Nearly 15% of those with kidney failure required dialysis. And deaths in Italy rose by 262 today versus 195 the day before. It is the largest number of deaths in one day in a week. The number of new cases also rose as Italy prepares to ease some lockdown restrictions coming up on Monday. As always, you can get more on our coronavirus coverage by going to CNBC.com. Kelly, back to you. All right, Sue, thanks very much. There are currently a lot of
2: tests out there for COVID-19 and more on the way, but reliability remains an issue. Let's get to Meg Terrell, who has the very latest on this front. Hi, Meg.
9: Hey, Kelly. Well, we keep hearing about new tests being approved uh, to detect the virus that causes COVID-19 all the time. Uh, There are now three different kinds of tests on the market, and experts do point out that the accuracy of the tests uh, is not all the same. So for the molecular PCR test, that's the most common test to detect current infection, Uh, some estimates put about 5 to 30% of those tests giving back false negatives, meaning you've actually got the disease, but the test says that you don't. Uh, As for antibody tests to detect prior and infection, uh, The FDA has set a threshold of um, no more than 10% false negatives, but some of the tests that are on the market before these new guidelines are even worse than that. And then finally, the newest test is an antigen test, which can return results very quickly, but for negative tests, uh, you should not count on that as being correct necessarily, the FDA says. Um, now, some news has come out about the Abbott ID Now test. An NYU study uh, published yesterday, not yet peer reviewed, suggests that that machine misses one third to one half of positive samples however harvard's michael minna a testing expert said on twitter today that the analysis is flawed and abbott of course is pushing back saying the results are not consistent with other studies of the test it says it's distributed more than 1.8 million of the tests and the reported rate of false negatives to abbott is 0.02% which they say they've previously shared with the fda they say it's unclear if the samples were tested correctly in this study and in communications with other users of the test it's performing as expected but kelly this is concerning because because that test is the one used uh, by the White House to screen folks being in contact with the president and others. I talked with Dr. Mike Osterholm from Minnesota, who said it's like giving squirt guns to the Secret Service. Kelly?
2: You know, he's so good with these analogies, uh, unfortunately, in this case. Meg, we appreciate it. Uh, Meg Terrell. For more (laughs) on the accuracy of these tests, let's talk to Dr. Pervi Parikh. She's an immunologist at NYU Langone Health. Um, Dr. Parikh, why are these tests uh, still so bad, uh, frankly, for for lack of a better term.
10: Right, um so with covid nineteen you know we're in a unique situation that we're developing tests and treatments as we're learning about the disease as we 're treating the disease, so we don't have the luxury of time um, as other illnesses where we have tried and true methods um, and then to make matters even more complicated, you know there's other coronaviruses around the common cold is a coronavirus, so <laughs> some of these antibody tests are unfortunately cross reacting with other coronaviruses as well and The high false negative rates are making it very uh, challenging to determine who has it, who doesn't have it. Right. Um, And some the opposite problem. Right. Some people might get the false sense of security that they had it when they may not have.
2: Exactly. False positives are more of an issue on the antibody test, maybe false negatives for the test itself. But listen, falseness, period, uh, is the problem. But I guess I wonder, do other countries have the same similarly high level of problematic tests as we do? Or is there something Um, You know, are ours just frankly not up to to snuff or are other countries like South Korea and and so many
10: different ones uh,
2: battling this? Are their tests better?
10: Uh, That's a great question. I don't know the exact specificity and sensitivity of testing in other countries, but uh, I would imagine that it's it's a they have. The same challenge. Um, The other issue, too, is that, you know, in the U.S., we have so many different companies making tests. Um, The FDA is um, approving them quickly under uh, emergency approval. So, again, we don't have the time to study to make sure these tests are absolutely accurate. What would you tell someone? Let's take
2: me if I said, "Okay, I want to go get a test for coronavirus and I also want to get a test for an antibody. What questions should I be asking to figure out whether I'm going to get a good test and, and where should I go in order to Give myself the best shot at getting a really good test.
10: Right. So the things that are most helpful in testing are two things called specificity and sensitivity. If a specific, if the specificity of a test is high, it means it can rule something in with accuracy. So say that you that you do have it. And that the sensitivity um, is high, that means it can rule something out. So you actually want a test that's high. Actual infection, um, you know, the testing can be done at any time. Um, and for the antibody, which measures if you've had the infection or recover from the infection, generally that should be done at least ten to fourteen days after your symptoms have started. Yeah. L- last quick question: Do you think there's something about the way people are doing the test that is
2: the problem? You know, are they are they swabbing far back enough in your nose? As uncomfortable as that is.
10: Right. So with any test, there is the issue of um, that it's operator dependent. So again, if the samples are not corrected properly, uh, nasal swab is a great example. If you're not getting far back enough, not getting enough of uh, the sample, then you know that can cause a false negative test. Um, and the same goes with a lot of these rapid tests. A lot of them are finger pricks. Uh, and so if you don't have enough blood collected, if it's collected improperly or there's any contamination, that's also an issue. In um, speaking with some of my colleagues at the NIH last night, even very, very critically sick patients, they've been getting Getting false negatives on. But then when they go into their lung washings, they actually find that they do have the virus. Yep. It's too bad, uh, again, with the need
2: uh, to know so much about this, that, that the reliability is still so much of an issue. Dr. P- uh, Preek, thanks very much for joining me today. Appreciate you explaining a little bit of what's going on here. Let's take a look at the markets right now. We're at session highs. The Dow's now up 246 points right now. That's a better than 1% gain. The S&P's up 17, two-thirds of a percent. And the NASDAQ just turned positive. It's up by 14. Coming up, it's time for governments to accept a dire reality. Our, our, one of our guests says we are entering a depression. That's the message from Eurasia Group's Ian Bremmer. It's his message for world leaders, and he'll join us with it ahead. Plus, casinos aren't pushing their luck when it comes to reopening, and they're undergoing a major transformation so consumers feel safe. What will they look like, and will they have the same allure? We'll dig into that. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple. Welcome back to The Exchange. What a different picture this afternoon for markets uh, than we thought we were going to have today. We're in positive territory for all three averages, and Dom Chu has more for us. Dom?
3: How about the highs of the day, Kelly? I mean, this is a decent intraday turnaround in stocks. Uh, the Dow, the S&P 500, and Nasdaq, as you can see here, currently up at their highs of the day, up about a half a percent for the S&P 500. The Nasdaq now peaking in a positive territory for just around the first time today. At the lows of the day, we saw the S&P roughly down about 53 points. Now, from a sector perspective, the leader, Leadership has been with financials far and away the best performing sector up two and a half percent energy utilities rounding out the top three on the bottom side of things industrials consumer staples and real estate you can see here the real laggard so far. Now some of the stocks to watch today check out what's happening here. Airline stocks lower on the day, due in part to Delta, saying it may have around 7,000 too many pilots come this fall and that it expects a lengthy downturn in longer haul international travel routes given the COVID-19 pandemic. That was an internal memo at Delta. Shares of Smile Direct Club also down today, but off the worst levels of the day after the maker of dental aligners reported disappointing quarterly results and will end on a high note. Shares of American Express up alongside a lot of these other consumer finance and credit card companies helped along partly by commentary from MasterCard, saying that it's seeing a slight rebound in some credit card usage trends in the last couple of weeks, perhaps indicating a gradual thaw, Kelly, in consumer spending habits during this virus pandemic. Back over to you.
2: Yeah, that's good news. But, man, 7,000 extra pilots is astonishing. Don Banks want to quickly check on oil, which is also rallying right now and sitting at session highs. Crude, which has been much more volatile the last couple of months than almost it's ever been, today is continuing that streak. It's up 7% and it's back above $27 a barrel for the June contract, which actually will expire in a few days. And all the more reason to keep an eye on this. Now, as states across the country slowly start to reopen, customers are starting to adjust to their new normal shopping experience. More safety precautions, fewer people. My next guest has malls open in two states and in some cases... His stores are seeing lines out the door. For more on the path forward for retail, I'm joined by Nate Forbes, president and managing partner of luxury mall owner and operator, The Forbes Company. Mr. Forbes, it's good to see you again. So the last time we spoke, you were just starting to reopen. I, I believe your mall in Detroit. Uh, what's going on now? What can you tell us?
11: Well, Kelly, thanks for having me back. We have two properties open in Florida. We opened on Monday in uh, Waterside Shops in Naples, Mall of in Orlando. First day crowds were very good, about 30 to 40% of the normal traffic levels. It slowed down the last two days. Today has picked up a little bit. We are opening more stores each and every day. We're up to about 50% of our stores open in the shopping centers with more stores opening every day. And we expect the weekend to be fairly robust.
2: I saw some uh, footage a moment ago when we were uh, teasing your segment of people waiting in line outside the stores. Um, can you talk a little bit about what those lines look like, mask wearing, social distancing? I mean, are are there a lot of requirements? Are people voluntarily doing things like that? Or are they just saying, to heck with it, I- I'm going shopping?
11: Yeah, well, in the state of Florida, which I'll speak about first, um, it is it is not a mandate to wear masks. We are mall employees wear masks. We don't require the consumers to wear masks. We are finding that about 75 percent of the guests are wearing masks. They are respecting social distancing The stores are doing a good job of limiting the number of people in the stores. Therefore, we're seeing queuing happen outside of the stores. Louis Vuitton, Gucci, they've had some nice queuing of lines during the first few days uh, at Mall of in Orlando. And we expect more of that to continue when some more retailers like Apple and Lululemon open their doors uh, in the near future. Yeah, so
2: if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit about the kinds of stores. You mentioned Gucci and Apple and so forth, where you're definitely seeing people show up are there, is there a type of store that people are more st- staying clear from? I mean, are you, are you gleaning any more consumer insights here, or does it have more to do with the stores themselves figuring out how to reopen and the ones being most high in demand, obviously, seeing the longer lines?
11: Yeah, I think there's a couple things working. Obviously, these malls were closed for eight weeks in time, so you had people clienteling during that period of time. So you're starting to see a lot of people coming to the stores to pick up their goods in the luxury segment, and in the home goods segment. The Williams Sonoma's, the Pottery Barn's, the Sur La tables those type of stores seem to be doing well uh, on the rebound here as we open these shopping centers. So we act as the conduit and fulfillment centers for the period of time that we were open. And now we have to reintroduce the customers so they feel comfortable with the socialization aspect of coming back to the mall so they make several stops during their visit hmm. and they visit uh, multiple stores while they're at the shopping center.
2: Yeah, because you don't want them just to, you know, kind of pick up their item and leave. I guess my, my last question is about the valet experience, what you're trying out. I know in Detroit especially, uh, that was something that, that you guys were starting. Do you think that that is gaining traction? Is it likely to continue or is it probably going to be abandoned and we see people just going back into the mall?
11: Well, I think a couple things. We started a lot of these services pre-COVID and I think we'll continue them after curbside delivery so we become as owners and developers agnostic as to how the transaction happens whether we become the fulfillment center we become a way to fulfill online and it truly becomes an omnichannel opportunity we'll deliver to the home we'll provide curbside delivery and of course most of all we want to encourage everybody to come to the shopping center visit multiple stores and really enjoy the experience and the socialization around shopping
2: Well, 30 to 40 percent of normal traffic is certainly more than I would have expected uh, in just the first week or two. Uh, Nate, thanks very much. We hope to check back in with you soon. Thanks, Kelly. Nate Forbes is president and managing partner of the Forbes company. Coming up, glass partitions, full face masks, poker chips bathed between plays, temperature checks and lots of electronics. All of this is what casinos in a post-COVID world could look like. Will they have the same allure? We'll dig into that plus binging breakfast and betting, a look at some of today's biggest bullish calls on the street. Stay with us here after this quick break. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's take a look at some of today's biggest calls. And we're going to start with Netflix, which was initiated at Jeffries with a buy target and a $520 price target. Netflix is at $439 today. Jeffries says they see three reasons to buy the stock. The addressable market is vastly underappreciated, margins are improving, and Netflix has proven its ability to create value under an evolving landscape. Now, hardly an out-of-consensus call. Uh, Netflix shares, which have been up strongly this year, up a third of a percent today. Let's move on to Wendy's, upgraded by Evercore to an outperform with a $25 price target. Uh, the call is based on the company's successful launch of U.S. Breakfast, which they're calling very impressive. They expect breakfast sales to continue to build with economic reopenings. And by the way, Nelson Peltz uh, had some co- bullish commentary about Wendy's last hour as well. Uh, Nevercore adds that the company's new ad strategy is hitting a groove and will result in cost savings. Wendy's uh, just over $20 today, up just under 2%. And finally, DraftKings initiated at Susquehanna with a positive rating and a $33 price target. They're saying DraftKings is the first pure play online gambling platform with scale. They are a market leader in the U.S. with significant advantages due to seven years in business. Hard to believe it's been seven years now and a huge database of users. DraftKings only recently went public. Of course, it's up a little bit less than 3% today, uh, around $26 a share. Coming up on The Exchange, it's time to face reality, says my guest. This is a worldwide depression. That's Eurasia Group's message to world leaders. We're going to speak with founder Ian Bremmer about that, what people should do about it, and much more. Stay with us. Welcome back. Casinos are eager to reopen as they've watched their stocks crater over the past three months. When they do, though, the things we've come to expect there, like slot machines, table games and buffets, may look and feel very different. Contessa Brewer joins me now with the path forward for the industry. Contessa.
0: Kelly, 26 of nearly 1,000 casinos have reopened already. Most of those are tribal. And the operators nationwide know that in order to operate successfully, they're going to have to make sure their workers and their customers feel it's safe. Casinos aren't willing to roll the dice with coronavirus exposure, so gamblers will see some immediate changes. Doors that open automatically. Dealers wearing masks limited spaces for players at the tables.
12: Nothing beats the energy of standing around a craps table or a crowded blackjack table uh, when players are winning, and, it's gonna, and and that's not gonna happen uh, in the same manner.
0: Poker rooms may have plexiglass partitions. Blackjack tables may have sneeze guards on steroids and cards dealt face up for less handling. At the slots, machines will be turned off between players. Casino operators are increasing their cleaning budgets, sanitizing chips, or changing cards more often. In this Deadwood South Dakota casino, crews put stickers on spaces they've just cleaned.
12: The one thing I think that will certainly stick is a a renewed focus on sanitation and hygiene and cleanliness.
0: Amid coronavirus concerns, casino buffets likely will become historic relics, especially as they're expensive to operate. For some, drink service will disappear for the near future. Employee testing and temperature checks will become standard in some casinos. Wynn Resorts has established an on-site testing center. The shutdowns push traditional gamblers to online casinos and more states are likely to approve mobile gaming in their pursuit of new tax revenue. MGM CEO Bill Hornbuckle told me that they're aiming to upgrade their air filtration systems to bring in as much as 100 percent fresh air, looking for everything to be touchless. We're thinking voice-activated elevators. And then especially the way you pay for gambling is going to be different in the future. Think about it. Cash is dirty, and yet it's still the standard in casinos worldwide though mobile gaming, of course, has moved on to electronic payments. And now these operators are pushing regulators to accept those mobile payments as well. Think think of it, if you get rid of the dollars, you may be able to ante up with just your phone and get rid of the chips as well, Kelly. Yeah,
2: I always think there's like two different kinds of casino customers. There's the entertainment kind, and then there's frankly kind of more of the, the, the addicts, the older crowd, especially. And I just wonder, Katessa, like, If they're going to be drawn into these facilities when they're open and if that's a a health and a safety hazard for them, too, I mean, you know, should maybe more precautions should be taken for casinos, say maybe now is just not the right time or maybe we take it extra slow or I don't know. I, I just I wonder.
0: Well, you know, in Louisiana, the regulators have now said that these uh, commercial casinos can reopen on Monday, but at 25 percent capacity so that they can practice social distancing and have lots of cleaning in between players. The smaller casinos, the uh, racetracks and and racinos and riverboats, they say, look, we can't make it profitable if we can only get 25 percent of our uh, occupancy in here. Yeah. So it's going to be a real push and pull between safety and profit.
2: Yep. No, that's for sure. Contessa, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Contessa Brewer with the latest there. Coming up, brace yourselves. My next guest says we're in the first depression of our lifetimes and massive relief and subsidies are needed to get through it. Eurasia Group's Ian Bremmer joins me straight ahead. Then coming up on Power Lunch, Tapestry, which owns brands like Coach and Kate Spade, is starting to reopen some of its stores. The CEO joins us with why they chose to open now and what the new normal shopping experience will look like. Stay with us. Welcome back with the U.S. and other countries starting to reopen. The fear now is about a second wave of corona cases and a false sense of security. My next guest says a wave of bankruptcies is coming and that we're going to need massive relief and subsidies to tackle the first depression of our lifetimes. Joining me now is Ian Bremmer. He's president of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. You know, Ian, I mean, the Great Recession was pretty bad, all things considered. So, you know, to to say that this is going to be the first depression of our lifetimes, I mean, how much worse do you think relative to, to that event?
12: Uh, It's pretty clear. Uh, It's going to last a lot longer. I mean, by 2009, uh, pretty much everyone felt like the economy was in rebound. We saved the banks. People were concerned that we were going to we could uh, have a depression uh, if it had spiraled. Uh, But the bailouts, both of Wall Street and Detroit, as well as the coordination internationally between the U.S., the Europeans, the Chinese, the G20 that we put together really made a difference. There's no such coordination right now. Uh, this is a truly global crisis, uh, the pandemic, as well as the shutdown of both the economic, the supply and the demand side of the economy, uh, every uh, every country in the world being dramatically affected. I and mean, there's no one out there that thinks that this is not much, much bigger, both in size and duration uh, from what we experienced in 2008, 2009. Uh, and I understand people don't want to use the terminology uh, in the same way that we did not want to call it a pandemic uh, for the first, you know, sort of months, even as we saw that it was right. expanding from country to country, from region to region. But that, that is the reality. And I think the earlier we come to grips with it, uh, the better prepared, particularly our government leaders, will be for the kind of continued large scale support that's going to be required you for know, our citizens.
2: I I guess I don't share that view that you're saying that everybody has. I mean, when we talk about the magnitude of unemployment, no question, this is going to be the, you know, the worst event that we've probably ever seen. But in the Great yep. Depression, it took four years for the unemployment rate to peak. And in this case, it happened in about four weeks. Eight so, weeks, yeah. you know, the, it, to me, the Great Recession was, you know, the collapse of industries and, and people's households, you know, the, the one asset that they had invested in. And there was no clarity that the economy was going to come back. When we talked about secular stagnation, all these things for years and years and years. In this case, it seems like, hey, a pandemic hit. If a tidal wave hit the country, I wouldn't suddenly think, you know, hey, something had fundamentally changed. I just think, how quickly can we rebuild? And so maybe to that point, what do you think is required here?
12: Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, by by the end of 2009, I mean, we weren't talking about Occupy Wall Street uh, anymore. Right. I mean, you know, fundamentally, there was big inequality. It was growing in the United States, uh, but we felt like it was in the rearview mirror we could move forward. And there was an awful lot of confidence. Uh, And that's why we didn't end up doing infrastructure. We ended up tilting back to healthcare, which is what Obama wanted to do, um, because he didn't feel like he had to spend all of his political capital uh, to focus on getting out of this crisis. It's gonna take a lot longer, right? I mean, you're, you're talking about the ability to get people back to work, to get companies back and functioning. Nobody believes that that's really going to be feasible like it was before, until we have a vaccine that works, right. that's at scale. Uh, I mean, I'm sitting here in New York, my buddy Danny Meyer, who's the most famous restaurateur uh, in New York and in some ways in the world, came out in the last 24 hours saying, I, I'm not gonna be able to reopen my restaurants uh, until we have a vaccine. It's just not gonna work. It won't be profitable, it won't be safe. Um, and I think that you know, you're, you're getting stories like that, whether it's the airlines or the hospitality industry yeah. or the sports industry, entertainment broadly, I mean, you know, how do we get kids back in schools? I mean, all of these things are going to be so challenging. They take a lot longer than people think. And the new normal is not going to be the old normal. And, and that is, I think, a minimum of three years before we work our way through right. that. So you combine that with the scale of it. And it doesn't mean that, the great, that this is like the Great Depression of 100 years ago, because we're a lot wealthier now than we were then. So, I mean, you know, today, I mean, even emerging market economies, their middle classes are wealthier than the middle class in the United States was 100 years ago. So there's more resilience. Yeah. But if you still if you look at what the definition of a depression is, we're entering one.
2: Occupy Wall Street, by the way, I don't even think it started until 2010 or 2011. I mean, there there was a real shell-shocked mentality for a long time uh, after that event. But in this case, when you're when we're talking about what government should do, and I know you dismissed the, the infrastructure that didn't happen uh, last yeah. time around, um, what do you think the right remedy is? Uh, do you think that what's been done already is, you know, some of the right approach? You know, immediate grants for hard-hit businesses, you know, loans, uh, the Federal Reserve's liquidity facilities. I mean, has... Would you say all of that, so far, so good, we just need to keep doing more?
12: Yeah, so far, pretty good. I, I actually think that the, uh, what the United States did, bipartisan, uh, both Mnuchin and Pelosi, the House and the Senate, rowing very quickly to get the entire economy relief. But that lasts until about June, uh, and we're going to need a lot more. And as you've seen, uh, it's about to get a lot more politicized. It's about to get a lot more difficult. I mean, when you have 40% of households that had jobs back in February losing jobs, as we heard from Jay Powell from the Fed report just 24 hours ago, um, and those jobs are not coming back. Every CEO I talk to in the United States of a major company tells me they can make more money with fewer people in the next five to 10 years. Now, they've known about the potentials of automation and big data and technology displacement for a long time, but they were making so much money they didn't have to make those tough decisions. Now they're going to be doing in the teeth of the worst crisis of their lifetimes. How do we take care of these people? And also, how do we ensure that these companies can make it through uh, to the other side of the storm? And and both of those things are going to have to happen. That's an immense amount of money on top of uh, budget deficits that are already uh, of a scale that we've never seen before. And not just the United States, but around the world, we're going to have to see this.
2: Well, uh, Ian, you're, you're not invited back anymore until you, you know, you got to give us something
12: more, more upbeat, just a little more upbeat. I'll give you something much <laughs> more upbeat if you want to close, which no, we, is that I, the I do, I really of the 2008 financial crisis wasn't big All enough right. to address the structural underlying Ian challenges that, we are, that workers are experiencing. This one might Asia be group. big enough to make a difference for them.
2: The background alone uh, is cheerful enough. We thank you very much for your time, sir. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
8: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.